Thank you. You may be seated. I wonder if some of you can remember way back to the late 1980s when a guy named Edgar Wisenot wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Any of you remember that book? I remember. I received one in the mail. Um, He mailed that book to pastors all across our country, 88 reasons. He was a NASA scientist and a student of the word, and he really became convinced, particularly through studying the feasts of Israel, which have some prophetic significance to them. Uh, and, And in his studies, he decided that 1988 was the year Uh, that the Lord would return. And so he wrote that book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. What's remarkable about it, even though he sent it out for free to uh, Christian leaders across the country, he sold 4.5 million copies of that book. Well, if you're holding your breath wondering if the Lord returned in 1988, I can with significant confidence tell you it did not happen. The evidence does not bear out that it happened. And some of you who've been born since then uh, can be at ease. It has not happened yet. In fact, he admitted that it didn't happen and he wrote another book the next year entitled The Final Shout, Rapture Rapture Report. That's the mic feedbacking, I think. Rapture Report 1989. So... It didn't happen in 1988, and so in 1989, he writes another book, and needless to say, as you can well guess, he didn't sell nearly as many copies of that book. (laughs) Well, not to be outdone with his own writing uh, work, he, in 1993, ended up writing another book entitled, 23 Reasons Why a Pre-Tribulational Rapture and he was learning from his experiences. He added in the subtitle, looks like it will occur on Rosh Hoshana, 1993. And then that didn't happen. And he yet wrote another book in 1994. And by now, I guess, uh, you know, he just had curiosity seekers that were buying his book. Um, What's he going to say next? And now the earth's destruction by fire is the name of the book, the subtitle. And now the earth's destruction by fire, nuclear bomb fire, prediction for 1994. Well, in 2001, he did meet the Lord and he passed away in 2001. I really don't know a lot about the man, but isn't it interesting how curious we are about the last days, about the return of the Lord, about how the world will end? Somebody writes a book, 88 Reasons in 1988, Why the Lord Will Return, and 4.5 million copies sell. It is interesting how fascinated we are with end-time topics, how the world will end, when the Lord will set up his kingdom, when he will return for his people. Sometimes our curiosity is out of balance. I read a story of uh, one of the well-known Bible teachers from Dallas Theological Seminary, Um, who is now with the Lord, but a well-known Bible teacher there and theologian, uh, J. Dwight Pentecost. 
who was invited to give a prophecy series in a local church. He was invited to uh, speak out at a local church, and the pastor asked him to do an entire week of prophetic sermons on the Lord's return and the end of the world, and what does the Bible say? And, And in the middle of that sermon series, in the middle of the week, on the Wednesday night when you would expect in those days, Wednesday night, and a lot of people will come out more on Wednesday than other nights, Um, he threw in a sermon that didn't have anything to do with prophecy and they promoted it and it was how to fall more in love with Jesus. Turned out that night was the all-time lowest attendance of the week with only about half as many people in attendance. We're only about half as interested in falling more in love with Jesus than we are with his return. I'm not sure what that is. Um, There is, as you well know in the Bible, um, a little bit of a almost a sci-fi feel to the book of Revelation. I invite you this morning not to the book of Revelation, but to the gospel of Matthew. And as we have been teaching our way through the gospel, this wonderful, incredible gospel of Matthew, we find ourselves now in chapter 24 and chapter 25. And here Matthew is going to carefully record for us some of the very teaching and the words of our Lord as though we were there as the disciples asked some questions. I want to mention just a couple of things before we read our text and dig in. And if you have your listening guide or your sermon notes nearby, you might find that helpful to track along. It is somewhat of a common mindset today that some people believe that when you approach the passages of the Bible that are about the end times, it's categorized as apocryphal literature. Apocryphal literature. It is common among any number of Bible teachers today to approach apocryphal literature and say you cannot use the same hermeneutic or Bible interpretation methods with apocryphal literature as you can the rest of the Bible. In other words, as you read scripture, you will read it a certain way through a certain understanding of what words mean and how it is to be taken. But when you come to the prophetic apocryphal passages, uh, some of the Old Testament prophets, some passages in the Gospels and some of the epistles and then the book of Revelation that you you must back away a little bit and it is with a much a higher level of uncertainty that you would approach that passage because it is not to be understood in a literal fashion in the way we might take a a John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We would not try to spiritualize that passage. We believe that God, a real God, has a real son. He sent his son Jesus to live and to die on the cross for us, that whosoever, that's anybody, would believe in him, should not per- We don't play around with that passage, but then when we get to these apocryphal, the apocryphal texts and the prophetic texts, often then we back away and we say, well, you can't really know for certain that 144,000 is 144,000, and we don't really know if a thousand really is a thousand years, and we don't know if seven really means seven, and it probably means something else, and And so it is approached. And I just want to tell you straight up front that I don't do that. I'm not smart enough to do that for one thing because I don't know what words mean other than what I think the words are trying to mean. And so as we approach Matthew chapter 24 and turn from chapter 23 into chapter 24, I want you to know that it's through the same grid that we're going to look at Scripture. Our Lord is teaching, and we're going to try to understand what He's teaching. That being said, I will will, uh, grant that 
Apocryphal literature is difficult to understand. And it is filled with symbolism. And that symbolism is a legitimate writing mechanism. And it is often difficult to know unless the Bible defines itself. We need to be careful sometimes being emphatic about things that the Bible doesn't define down for us. So know that as we spend the fall looking at prophetic passages of Scripture, that that's going to be the grid through which we see it. We're going to try to understand it uh, as, as it's presented unless there's a reason to look at it from any other angle. Let's go ahead and read our text And then we'll start into our outline and you'll see that our Lord's teaching today is going to spring from a question that the disciples asked them. Our text today is Matthew chapter 24 and I'd like to use as the introduction of this series the first 14 verses. And I know from experience this morning at 8 and 9.30 that we'll not quite make it through. But that's okay. Uh, Matthew 24, 1 through 14. And so Jesus left the temple and was going away and when his disciples came to to point out when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation. They will put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's stop there in our text today and let's go to our outline and let's try to understand the context and the mindset that the disciples had in asking our Lord a question, a specific question about when he would establish his kingdom. Um, We need to understand that um, chapter 24 follows chapter 23. I know that's a profound statement, but recognizing at the end of chapter 23 what our Lord has been talking about. Remember that chapter 23 is a judgment chapter. He has pronounced these woes upon the Pharisees and on Israel at large. And out of these woes then, let's just read chapter 23 verses 37 through 39. I want you to see that it is, I believe, out of the conclusion of his teaching here in chapter 23 that our disciples ask a question for clarification. They are seeking clarification in chapter 24. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together? Notice the word picture, it's very tender. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings... And you were not willing. An invitation from the greatest evangelist that ever lived that was scorned by his own people. 
See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we're recognizing under letter A that the disciples are seeking clarification. They recognize that Christ has just pronounced judgment. And out of this judgment, he recognizes that the the Pharisees and then Israel at large have essentially rejected him. And part of the judgment that he states is verse 38, this simple sentence, See, your house is left to you desolate. Now I think that that is, in general, a word about Israel at large or the Jewish people at large. You will become a desolate people. And indeed they will. I think also it is a reference, no doubt, to the the structure of the temple itself. You have a house, and this house is going to become desolate. And so we recognize that this is rolling around in the mind of the disciples. And they're trying to understand what is it that this judgment that he has just proclaimed that Israel will become desolate, that our house will be desolate. What does that mean? I want you to see as we turn to Mark chapter 13 that they likely, and it appears, I think that, this makes sense that, that their, their understanding what the Lord says is in reference to the temple. Now look at Mark. Flip over to Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And notice how Mark, another eyewitness, records what happens here. How did this conversation about the end times and Christ establishing his earthly kingdom and the timing of that kingdom, how did this conversation get started? Mark says in Mark 13, 1, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Back to Matthew 24, picturing our Lord with his disciples leaving Here's this marvelous temple, and you need to understand that it is the greatest building in all of Israel. It is on a a mount over somewhat of a cliff. It is a huge building. It has been under construction for decades. All right, this is Herod's temple, um, said, and it is a rebuild of Solomon's temple. But it has never been really completed to the glory of days of old, and they're trying to add to it and make it bigger, and that's why they're... They're just awed by the construction that's going on and by how massive the stones are. Uh, I understand that there's some of these stones have been unearthed and some of the largest ones are as high as 13 feet high and 45 feet long. They were quarried and hewn uh, very carefully by skilled craftsmen off-site and then brought in and fit together perfectly without mortar and that a stone that size would weigh 570 tons. Some of the stones were overlaid with gold. On the inside of the temple was ornate woodwork, tapestry. It was a beautiful, beautiful building and it stood high above all the rest of the city. There was no city skyline to compete with it. And it was this huge temple. And here the disciples and Jesus are walking by and they acknowledge the massiveness and the beauty of it and the awe of it. And Jesus just said, your house will become desolate. And they're trying to say to themselves, how's this going to be? 
how would it be that this temple could ever be torn down? We also need to recognize something here that letter B is that the disciples had an expectation. They had an expectation that at any time our Lord was going to set up his earthly kingdom. So here he is talking about the desolation of Israel. They know the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament. They know that there are some cataclysmic events that have been prophesied. They think that it's possible that some of that perhaps could happen. But they are expecting in their lifetime with their own eyes to see and to be a part of the establishment of Christ's earthly kingdom. Now let me show you, you can get inside their head just a little bit if you flip over to Luke chapter 19, verse 11 with me. Look at Luke chapter 19, Matthew, Mark, Luke 19. Remember that Luke was not an eyewitness, he was a researcher and a historian. And in Luke chapter 19, as he gives his account of what happened right before the triumphal entry. Now note that this happened right before the triumphal entry. In chapter 19, verse 11, notice what Jesus says. He says, and they heard these things. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a disciple. Man, let me just start over. This is not Jesus speaking, but it's telling about why he's going to speak. Luke nineteen eleven. As they heard these things, he, that would be Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable. Notice, because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed, they as the disciples, because they just supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear, what's the next word? ESV translates the next word, immediately. It's going to be at hand. The kingdom of, of God is going to appear immediately. We're going to be a part of it. Remember, the, a familiar passage is Matthew chapter 20, when they were arguing as they walked And Jesus goes back and says, what are you talking about? And he already knew that they were arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And and they got their mother to ask, can my boys sit one on your right and one on your left in your kingdom? They completely inside their mind thought that Christ's eternal, his millennial kingdom at least, this utopian kingdom that the Old Testament prophesied about, where he would rule on David's throne, and he would rule with perfect justice, and the lion would lay with the lamb, and all sin would be taken care of, that he was going to establish this kingdom right there in Jerusalem, just as the scriptures prophesied, and that they would be a part of it. And one other verse in Acts 1.6, notice that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts 1.6. And notice that one of the very last questions, maybe the last question they ever asked our Lord, the disciples, before he ascended into heaven. So this Acts 1.6 is right before the ascension. Right before the ascension, right after the resurrection, 40 days later, Notice Acts 1, 6. So when they, came to, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I think that's, we're back in 24, Matthew 24, but I think that's a, a question that they asked that had more to it than just, are you going to finally overthrow Rome and are you going to give us our country back? That is a question about, Lord, okay, Lord, isn't it time right now for you to establish the kingdom? Isn't it time? Isn't this what we've been looking for? You also have a bit of their mindset by their response to the crucifixion, which, by the way, Matthew 24 is only now, what, 36 hours ahead of something like that. A day, day and a half before he's taken into captivity in the garden. 
What happened to the disciples at the time of the crucifixion? (laughs) The wheels came off, man. That's why you have this incredible picture in John's gospel of a room full of grown men up some stairway somewhere with the doors closed, the windows barred, hiding under the tables for fear of the Jews. Why? Because they were not confident of anything now. Their Messiah, their master, they had watched him breathe his last. They had watched blood flow down inside. They had watched him die. They were completely, completely confused at this point. They really believed this kingdom was coming in. And so back in Matthew 24 now, looking at our notes, that is the context and the mindset to lead to the questions that we see in the first few verses where they ask in response to our Lord's statement, they're walking out of the temple where, they've, where chapter 23 has concluded and they walk over to the Mount of Olives and, and uh, one of my commentaries was saying that in position, it would have been a little bit of a distance away, but from the Mount of Olives, they would have been able to look over and see, no doubt, the sun setting and reflecting on the gold of the temple. And it would have been most majestic and most beautiful setting there. And our Lord, as they walk by, has made this statement, perhaps in response to one of the disciples, notice the stones. Look how big and majestic this building is. Our Lord says, you see all these? You see all these stones? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another, and they will be thrown down. They now make their way to the Mount of Olives, which is kind of interesting, because in Ezekiel's prophecy, he's going to tell us that at our Lord's second advent, that would be the Lord's second coming, or the first coming of the Lord, or first advent, would be when he came and was born of Mary. You need to know in your mind also that when we study the scriptures, we're going to find about eight times more prophetic reference to the second coming of Christ for every one than we will the one reference to the birth of our Lord, the first heaven. There's eight times more prophetic statements about the second coming than there are of the first coming. By the way, and I've said this often here through the years, one of the reasons that I hold to as much as possible a literal understanding of the second coming of Christ in his second advent, is, how, is because of how literal the prophecies of the first advent unfolded. Bethlehem, a virgin, wise men. All these things that happened, happened and unfolded in real time, in real people's lives, in real places. It wasn't imaginary. You don't have to spiritualize it. Why would all of the prophecies of the first advent be literal and the prophecies of the second advent be spiritualized? I don't get that, and I don't think it's true. So here we are. Uh, there they, he's made this statement. You can see them making their way then up to the Mount of Olives, and that's why this passage is called the Olivet Discourse, because they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. All right. And for those of you who like outlines and like to know some of the details, this passage begins, chapter 24, begins what is considered the fifth message or main teaching section of our Lord in Matthew's gospel. There are five significant lengthy passages of scripture in Matthew where he teaches and they consider this to be the fifth and final section where our Lord is teaching a lengthy sermon. So they sat down, verse 3, on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately. Okay, so Mark chapter 13, verse 3, you don't have to turn there, but Mark 13, 3 says that it was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Peter, James, John, and Andrew who came. So it's like, okay, Lord, come on. Lord, we need to talk. You just said some things that we're not really connecting on. 
Now, we've acknowledged the stones of the temple. We've acknowledged that it's going to be a desolate house. And you've just told us there's not going to be one stone upon another. And I want to tell you, we just walked by a 570-ton stone. You tell me how that stone's going to turn over. And so they sit down privately, it says, verse 3, saying, and here's the question. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at and of the end of the age? Okay, and I think the idea here is, when are you going to close out what's been your authenticating ministry of miracles, and when are you going to sit on the throne, and when are you going to start the new millennial age here? And they expected that to be immediate. How's this going to happen? What's going to happen? And our Lord then goes on, and he gives signs, or what I've called warnings, Roman numeral 2 in our outline, these warnings that we would look for. Now, let me comment just a little bit about a common position on the understanding of this passage. You see, you're going to see, we're going to see later in the passage, this prophecy is going to come fulfilled in 70 A.D. Listen, in 70 A.D., Rome is going to decimate Israel. They're going to slaughter the Jews, and it is going to be chaos, and it is going to be the end of this era of Israel and the Jews as we know it, and essentially they never are an identifiable people group again. They are scattered until 1948. When Jesus said to his disciples, these stones are going to be thrown down one upon another, they had no idea that, it, that some of them would still be alive, some of them would be dead, they would be martyred for the gospel, which Jesus is going to prophesy in this passage. That during their lifetime, in 70 A.D., when Rome comes in, crucifying thousands of people every day, burning, pillaging, raping, murdering, destroying, that they're going to go, the Roman soldiers are going to go to the beautiful temple, and there with all the wooden carvings and all of the ornate tapestries and all of the things that are flammable, they're going to burn it. One account referenced that as they burn it, all of the gold plating melted and ran down in the crevices of all of this great stonework. They would have had to use horses with block and tackle. They used iron pry bars. We know from extra-biblical historical accounts then that the Roman soldiers using pry bars tore apart the entire temple, tumbling these rocks down in the valley below, partly to get to the gold, but mostly to fulfill the prophecy of our Lord Jesus. And that happened in 70 A.D., right there in a literal fulfillment. There are a lot of people, and there is a school of thought today that is quite common, that believes that our Lord's teaching in Matthew 24 and 25 is predominantly designed to explain what happened in 70 AD. It is called a preterist position. Preterist. P-R-E-T-E-R-E-S-T. Preterist. Now I want you to know that I am not a preterist. All right? I am much more in the category of what you would call a futurist. That is, that there's teaching here that our Lord is doing that just simply has not been fulfilled yet. And that when you put it together with the rest of prophetic passages in Scripture, it is yet to unfold a lot of this. I want you to notice, and part of the reason is the very wording and the very context in which we understand this passage, you will see that Jesus is forward thinking in it. He'll say, not yet, not yet, not yet. And it's more detail than what was fulfilled in some of the social, economic, geopolitical atmosphere of what happened by 70 AD. Now, there were earthquakes, and there was a little bit, you know, 
for example, at this time, there was relative peace in the world because Rome ruled. By 70 AD, there were some factions, there were warring nations, and Rome uh, was defeated. Part of, part of its army had been defeated by then. But I don't believe that it was to the extent that our Lord is talking. So, like so many passages of prophetic scripture, what you have here is you have a, an, an immediate application where it appears that, a, that some of this unfolds in a prophetic way that our Lord is teaching right there. And, and some of it is fulfilled in 70 AD. But at the same time, there is a, distance, a distant uh, measure to it. And it is a fulfillment of things, and of things yet unfulfilled. It is a prophecy of things yet unfulfilled. And so I think there is more of a dual role here and that a lot of this is forward thinking. I just wanted to mention that in case some of you were wondering where I am on that position. So our Lord now begins with his warnings and the first thing, and this is a part of the passage that you're fairly familiar with. You've heard some of these things through the years that in the end times, this is how it's going to be. Well, now you know why the question was asked. The stones are going to be tumbled down upon one another. How could that happen? It is so majestic. Jesus said it is going to happen. It actually happened in 70 AD. The temple will be rebuilt and it'll be destroyed again, I believe, based on part of this. So they say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them. Okay, here he goes. Here we go with these 10 warnings. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Letter A, spiritual confusion. The end of the age, the time before our Lord, now remember, he's going to say repeatedly, it hasn't happened yet. This is what you look for. These are the kinds of things that are going to go on. Spiritual confusion, and when we look back over the course of history, don't we see, ever since the time of Christ, those who want to mimic him, those who want to uh, deceive and deny the Christ, call themselves the Christ, we've seen it in our own lifetime. In the news, in the media, we had people a few years ago, um, fascinating stories, David Koresh, for example. And his compound that the ATF burned. Talk about uh, Jimmy Jones, for example, and, and uh, his church in California that moved to South America. And they all committed suicide drinking Kool-Aid. And um, major groups of people that would identify, we would identify as a cult group, for example, like Sun Young Moon and other people like that. They proclaim to be the Messiah. The writers of the epistles mention this as well. John in 1 John references, be on your guard. There are going to be many antichrists in the last days. Don't be deceived. So one of the first things we're going to have to be is discerning in this day because of the spiritual confusion that's going to go on in the world around us. Secondly, he goes into verse 6 and he says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of war. Regional conflict, regional conflict will be huge. And when we look back over the course of history, and you see, remember, remember that the writers of Scripture, they did not see the church age coming. After our Lord ascended into heaven, the disciples never dreamed that there would be over a 2,000-year gap before the fulfillment of Daniel's 70th year. And they had no idea that there was going to be an age of grace, the church age, 2,000 years so far, and our Lord still hasn't come. That gap, they never saw it. They just thought they was going to seamlessly run into one another and that they would be a part of it. And so even though there was some war rumbling going into 70 AD, when you read it, there's going to be wars and rumors of war. This is going to be a global effect. This is an idea. And you start, let's start today and go backwards. 
I mean, what are we reading in our headlines every day? I don't have to pull this stuff up on the screen. You know it all really well. China's building artificial islands in the South China Pacific Sea, and they own the sea there, and we don't like it, and, and we badmouth them, and so Putin says for us to watch out because the Chinese will get us, and then, then North Korea says they're going to flip some Scud missiles, and they think they got more than that now, and they've got even nuclear uh, capacity to take out South Korea, and to take out Guam, and to take out Japan, and to hit L.A., and, and they're going to do that, and they're talking like this, and Donald Trump says, you try, and you'll see what happens. Nothing in the world's ever seen what happened before. Well, I'll, push, I'll take care of you guys. <laughs> Wars and rumors of war, right? Wars and rumors. I'm starting to believe the old guy, too, myself. Wars and rumors of war. I mean, look back, Afghanistan, Iraq, in my childhood, Vietnam, Korea, World War II, the whole globe at war on multiple theaters. World War I, the war to end all wars, wasn't it? And you just walk backwards in history, and what, what does mankind define itself by, really, as a warring people. When you think about the horrific nature of war, don't you think we would avoid it? And our Lord said, listen, you're going to live in a world that is going to be defined by wars and rumors of war, and it will never go away. It will never go away. Third, he addresses our emotional concern. He says, for this must take place. Look what he says in verse 6. See that you are not alarmed. That's a lesson to the church today, isn't it? Do not be alarmed. Don't be an alarmist. Be steady. We'll take time later to look in 2 Thessalonians. But in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, one of the problems that they had is they were all alarmed, thinking that the Lord had come back or the Lord was coming back, and they were even quitting their jobs. They weren't working. They weren't paying their bills because of the Lord's return. Listen, you stay steady. You stay calm. Do not be emotionally disturbed over this stuff. Of all people, God's people, Christ followers in the church ought to have a steady hand in the middle and a clear head in all of this. It's God's plan. He's in control. Now look what he says. And you see that you are not alarmed for this must take place. Now notice the next phrase, but the end is not yet. This hasn't happened yet. It's still forward. They're looking forward. This entire section is a forward look. God is always in control. It is the unfolding of his plan. Do not panic. Fourthly, we have political confrontation. Notice he says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. I don't know that there's supposed to be a differentiation between kingdom and nation. A kingdom is a world that is, a nation that is ruled by an autocrat or somebody, a dictator, somebody who's a sole authority. A nation represents democracies. I don't know about that. I think it's just a manner of speaking. Nations and kingdoms, the powers of the world, what will they do? They will be in conflict with one another. We will have political confrontation, political confrontation as nation and kingdoms rise against one another. And don't we have it all the time? We have it filled in our history. Nikita Khrushchev banging his shoe down on the podium. What a great moment in history. A greater moment in history. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. As a president, a king of one nation tells a king of another nation what to do with his stuff. And it happens all the time. And there it is. And you could go on and on and illustrate it. 
on a lot of different levels, but there will be political confrontation. Notice that there will be agricultural catastrophe. Agricultural catastrophe. There will be famines, it says, so that there will be a letdown in the produce of food. They will not fulfill their obligation to feed their people. Now, I want to tell you something that and we will look at this a little bit in the future, but there are a lot of ways that this passage lines up with the sealed judgments in the book of Revelation. But one of the things that you're going to see, Jesus says, this has not happened yet. It is part of the birth pangs. It is forward, either through mismanagement, corruption, or natural disaster, many countries and nations cannot feed their own people. We're a blessed people. We're the breadbasket of the world. I've told you the story about being way back in the bush of Malawi. And uh, we were waiting for a, a service to begin in the village where we were going to preach. And there was like a little gazebo there. And Johanny had said to me, come over here. I want you to meet this man. And he wants to see you. He wants to tell you something. And it turned out he was the chief. He had on a business suit. He had on a suit and a tie and a wrinkled white shirt and bare feet. And he sat there in the hut, and he was the chief of this region. And he could not speak English. He was very polite. I sat down. Johanny translated. And he proceeded then to thank me for saving his village. Tell me, Johanny, tell me what he's talking about. He is saying that the United States fed his village when they had no food a few years ago. And the trucks came in and all of the cartons said, USA, USA, USA. And, and he thanked me for feeding him. They were starving to death. We know nothing of that. What we do here while the world starves is we put 10% of the corn we have, 10% of our fuel, we burn it out our exhaust pipes. One of the more brainiac moves that somebody ever came up with when the ground is full of good petrol and you're burning food while the rest of the world's starving, listen, you can't make up stupidity like that. You have to believe yourself to be very, very wise before you make decisions like that, and you prove yourself to be a fool. Forgive me if you're against burning petrol this morning, but I personally believe, and I shouldn't say it, I'm meddling now. What I was going to say was, I believe the greatest invention man has ever come up with is the combustion engine, but that's another conversation. Let's go, let's go. <laughs> That's what happens after three times here. <laughs> and so we have it, don't we? These catastrophes. We have political confrontation. We have agricultural catastrophe. We have seismological chaos. Seismological chaos. This is one that you've heard of. This is one that's illustrated in the Left Behind movies and all of the end times movies and these horrific earthquakes take place. And it is true that going into 70 AD, there were earthquakes and earth tremors and there, was a ma there were some major earthquakes at that time. There's no doubt that it was at some level fulfilled in that prophecy but it is interesting, and you know, you can look on the internet and you can see a whole timeline of, of earthquakes. We live in a world that quakes and trembles and shudders. And Janet and I, not too long ago, were uh, with Bob and Diane Iwig. Um, 
And actually, I think we were at John and Pepper Hill's house. Some of you know John and Pepper Hill. They used to come to church here. And at that time in Indiana, Bob and Diane came to visit. Or we were at John and Pepper Hill's, and we were there. And, and John had two phones going. He was in charge of uh, all of the homeland security for the state of Indiana under Governor Pence at the time. And he had two cell phones going, and they started going off. And he got up and went in the other room. And when he came back, he said, oh, that was Mike. He said, Mike Pence, he's up at a dinner somewhere and he's worried about there was tornadoes in the southern part of the state and he called John to make sure that they were watching him and I told him to enjoy his dinner we got everything under control and that led into a conversation about security for the state and some of the things that they were working on for homeland security in the state of Indiana a few years ago and I said well out here some of you guys basically all you have to worry about is tornadoes and I said oh no man he said the number one thing we talk about the number one thing we're working on is a reaction plan for this fault that runs through part of our state. And I, somebody after the second service, when I told this story, said they think that it's the, the Madrid fault. Maybe you've heard of it. I believe it comes up through Memphis, Tennessee, and it comes up through the heartland of America, up to St. Louis, and cuts through across Illinois and Indiana. And they are talking about that fault, not if we have a major earthquake, but they talk about when it happens. And because that fault is located where it is on these major populated areas, they talk about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people being killed or affected by this fault. Earthquakes, there's going to be earthquakes. Don't be surprised if that happens. Agricultural catastrophe, seismological chaos. Let's look real quick, and with this we will close up. We'll have to leave the end of this and we'll start over. Then, he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and they will betray one another and they will hate one another. The ESV translates, and many will fall away. The NIV translates that they will turn away of their own accord, essentially is the word. But there will be a personal consequence for those who will follow Christ in all of this. And this is reflected in the book of Revelation as well. But there will be a personal consequence. Notice what you'll be handed over. That means you'll be arrested, 9A. You'll be arrested. You'll be put to death. That's executed, 9B, executed. And, and all nations will scorn you. You'll be hated by all nations. Hated, 9C. I mean, what is, what is less popular nowadays than a Bible-believing Christian who follows Christ openly? You'll be scorned. No matter where you go, you're not popular. You're marginalized. You're one of them. You'll be hated. A turning away from the faith. You see, what happens in verse 10 then is a response to verse 9. And then many will fall away. You will have a turning away of people from following truly after Christ. They won't be able to handle it. Some of this is fulfilled in the book of Acts. Some of this is prophesied and I think a partial fulfillment in the book of Acts. They're going to be beaten for the gospel. They're going to go into town and the magistrates are going to arrest them. They're going to come before the magistrates and have to defend themselves. We have actual accounts in the book of Acts of this. And they're beaten. They're stone. They're thrown on trash heaps. Okay? So there is a, a closer, nearer look at this as Jesus talks about what's going to happen, and then there's a far away look, and we'll continue to build on that. Arrested, executed, hated, a turning away from the faith. There will be betrayal, verse 10b, a betrayal. Those from among us will even turn against one another. They will not be able to handle the pressure. In the last days, and as things accelerate towards the time of our Lord's return, it will, it will get worse and worse. And there will be more and more pressure on God's people to take a stand, to follow after Christ. 
And those from among the, our own group will turn against others within the group. And they will betray one another. They'll turn them in. They'll report on them. It makes me think of in the, in the old, call it the old days, in the 1960s on Wednesday night prayer meeting. We never had a prayer meeting. We didn't pray for our brothers and sisters in communist Russia, in the Soviet, former Soviet bloc countries. And what did you have there? All the stories that we would read about the believers in Christ going underground, and then they would have people among them who would turn them in and report on them, and they would get arrested and beaten and lose their property. They couldn't stand the pressure from the Soviet government. Betrayal. Spiritual callousness, verse 11. Many false prophets will arise, and they will lead people astray. People will be spiritually insensitive. They will be unwise, and they will follow after false teachers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We'll talk about that another day. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And then the end will come, it says. Spiritual calibers, global communication of the gospel, global communication of the gospel will take place before the Lord returns. That is, there won't be any part of the world where you won't be able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That could not have happened before 70 AD. Modern technology makes this all possible, and we'll talk more about that another day. I do want to note the text box on the back of your page, back up at verse 8 that we skipped. All of these are the beginning of birth pains, he says. All of these are the beginning of birth pains. That is a term describing the time frame between the advents, from the Lord's first return to his second return. It turns out nobody imagined it being so long. We don't know how long it's going to last. All of this is a time of birth pangs. And you'll notice that that phrase is used even in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's used in the Old Testament prophets. But notice in this passage... The terminology is that of, imp- of anticipation. The end is not yet, verse 6. And this gospel will be proclaimed, verse 14. And then the end will come. It's a forward-looking passage. We're going to have to stop right there. What do we take with us at a day like today? And we'll just stop. We'll bring more application because there are some very important instructions that our Lord gives on how we are to think and be and live in this time. But let's just touch back on what we already talked about a little bit where he says um, verse 6 see that you are not alarmed folks we don't have to be afraid if you know Jesus Christ is your savior you're part of his church we're part of God's plan it doesn't mean it will always be easy but our Lord himself looked at his disciples and said in the middle of the chaos be calm do not overreact Get up and go to work. Take care of your family. Pay your bills. Try not to write any books about 88 reasons why. (laughs) Just keep your eyes on Christ. And be steady at it. And watch what God does. Let's be a faithful church. In this age. In this time. Which I believe is still included in the time of the birth pangs. The preparation, it hasn't quite come yet, but it's getting ready. Birth pangs. What a word picture. Let's be safe. Let's be faithful and steady.